Some of you may not know, uh, my wife, my family, and I will be relocating locally here in the next year or so. There is an old farmhouse in, outside of Kennet that uh, is a fixer-upper, um, but we're going to go there and spend the rest of our lives, uh, Lord willing, here and there. But uh, it's been a big dream of our families. The home is, is, uh, is beautiful and has the potential to be beautiful. Uh, but it, it certainly needs a lot of work. And it's uh, steep in history. It was built in the late uh, 1700s, the original frame. And then it was later added to in the, about the 1830s. But uh, it's got a lot of history to it. And uh, the girl who grew up in it, uh, just before, you know, you know, the previous owners... When, they, when it was sold to the family, she agreed to come out and kind of share with us the history of the place because we'd heard these rumors about all that it was. The house was on the, is, was on the Underground Railroad Network, so it participated in the smuggling of uh, African-American slaves before the uh, Civil War. And she came out to show us around, and she started talking about, have you seen the tunnel, she said, the the hidden tunnel. I didn't know there was a hidden tunnel. <laughs> and she told me it was down in the basement. Uh, in this home, there's a basement, but then there's a basement in the basement. There's a second basement. And so it's like the root cellar of the original structure. And so you go in the basement, and then you, there's this dark portal into the abyss that I had to build so much courage to go down. But my boys are there, you know, so I had to, like, man up to this whole thing. So I'm staring down these, like, five steps into pitch black. And I had no flashlight, and so I pulled out my cell phone. <laughs> and I'm, I, you know, I'm creeping down the steps, like, one by one, and I finally get to the bottom of the steps. And you ever know these situations where it's dark? Even if, even if you're in a safe environment, like your bedroom, but you don't want to, you know, wake your wife or whatever you did when you're changing, how you kind of inch forward because you know there's a door or something. So the whole way through this root cellar, I'm, you know, with all the courage, I'm scooting forward with this pathetic little flashlight. And I mean, because of the monsters. You've got to be safe because of the monsters. You know? And my, all the boys are like staring down the stairs like, you still alive, Dad? And I'm, yeah. And I get all the way across this, this room, and the lady shows up, and she pulls a string, click, click, and the light comes on. <laughs> And I didn't tell her at the time, but I burned like two years of courage for nothing. Well, I think that's kind of life in a way. How when we're heading into something new, how scary it can be. You know, how when you don't know what's in front of you, how we, we are prone, we as the church especially are prone to scoot inch by inch, aren't we? Just... As though, as though God isn't really here, as though if we take barely the wrong step, we're going to fall off this precipice into the black abyss. But then there's this time, years later, or when it's all done, where we can sit around and we can joke about the time when, you know, in hindsight, God turns the light on, and it's all in 2020, and you're in a little root cellar with a ladder and a rock. But when we're in it, um, how difficult it can be to embrace God's plan for our lives, and God's hopes. And, and this morning, we're going we're gonna to kind of, I hope, revolve around this issue. My, my hope 
and all of this. You know, the whole sermon series, the scattering, was built around these big ideas. God wants to grow the church, spread the church, mature the church. I believe those are biblical. I believe that's God's will for this church, that we would be more mature, that more people would come to know Christ and join our fellowship, and that we would participate in the spreading of God's kingdom to people and places that have not heard about it. That is God's will. I'm convicted of it. It's all over the Bible. And I've thought, I thought when we, when we selected Acts, and I said, oh, this will preach all the way through Acts. And then I get to this backstory about Peter and Cornelius, and I'm stuck talking about change. I, I, can't, I can't read the 11th chapter and find a place where I go, God wants to grow the church, spread the church, mature the church. I find this, instead, what God's doing, I think, is saying, Are you ready? Are you ready? Because growing, spreading, and maturing are by their very nature change. It's change. And if a church, if a church is not willing, even if it's a scoop, to kind of push itself into the black, if it isn't even willing to do that, it will not mature, it will not grow, and it will not spread. And so we kind of have three weeks of change. Two weeks ago we talked about change. Last week we talked about it and with change and reflection. And this week we're talking about it as well. We're going to close out this conversation on, on change um, as we head towards the end of the sermon series. Next Sunday, Pastor Terry is going to close out this message series called The Scattering. But if you would, open your Bibles to the 11th chapter. We're going to spend a very little time up close to the text kind of asking the questions that the people in the text are asking, and then we're going to stop, we're going to make a very clear break of the message, we're going to step back and we're going to go, what is God doing, what does God intend about change in general? So that's kind of the two gears of this message this morning. So let me read the story, I'm going to read 11, 1 through 18. This is after Peter has met with Cornelius, it's after Cornelius has come to know Christ, This is the after effects. This is what happens when the rest of the world finds out. 11 verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of an uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was, and I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill, and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up again into heaven. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. 
As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, and as He had come on us at the beginning, then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as He gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. I'm going to read the first three verses again because there's a, the criticism we're going to spend a little bit of time on. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went into Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now this is interesting because what did the, what did the circumcised Christians in Jerusalem hear? What did they actually hear? It says it in verse 1. It says, they heard, the apostles and the followers in Judea heard through the grapevine that Gentiles had come to know, had received the word of God is what it says. But when they arrive, when Peter arrives in Jerusalem, what's the complaint? Is it we heard you preach to Gentiles? Is it we heard the Gentiles receive the message in an unauthorized way? It's we heard you went into their house and ate with them. Now, I, I want to go rough on these guys, uh, but I'm, they end well. Right at the very end, they praise the Lord. So we're going to go easy on them a little bit. But I'm going to describe for you, I don't exactly know how to read this criticism. You went into the house of the uncircumcised men and ate with them. I, I don't know exactly how I should say it, how it should sound in our ears when it's read. So I'm going to give you two examples, because this is two ways that uh, there's, a, this is a, there's a wrong way to say this, and there's a right way to say this. I hope they said it the right way, but... Here's the wrong way. You. How dare you enter the house of a filthy Gentile and sup with them? I'm aghast. That would be the first way. This, this attitude of being like, just totally this, the abject attitude that he, how dare he enter this room of filthy Gentiles and, and, and you know, visit with them and mix with them. He's ruined himself because of it. That's this first attitude. And I don't know if this is the way. I certainly had to have been part of it. I mean, the text is, feels like it's begging us to say that this was certainly part of the attitude that was present in the church in Jerusalem when Peter came back. But what is that? What is that kind of attitude? I think it's this. I think that kind of attitude expresses someone who is caught up in the practices of religion and doesn't know, is not caught up as much in God. They're caught up in the trappings. The whole mesh and web of, of what it, the religiosity of the event. This is what it means. We sing this way, we walk this way, we talk this way, we do this, we do that, we do this, we do that, and that's what makes us Christian. This kind of criticism comes out of that kind of person. Now, I don't know if they worship God, but they certainly seem to worship these webbings and these trappings. And, and now I would say, 
it helps that we're in a cinder block gymnasium. It kind of purges us from this tendency. If we had massive flying buttresses, I think we would constantly be fighting against falling in love with the things of the faith rather than falling in love with God. But I will say, I don't think, I don't think we're immune from it. I don't think there's any people group that's immune from it because the reality is, is that when something becomes familiar, we begin to lean on it a little more. When we have things in our faith that remain unchanged for a while, when they're they're the same for a while, we just begin to trust on them. It's like a rock and we start to think, well, maybe I can lean a little harder. It might hold my weight. And pretty soon we forget how we ever stood without this thing holding us up. And those things exist in a very casual church, or in very high church. Everywhere you go, there's the things that remain constant. We begin to kind of trust and feel as though they're really something that's permanent. But we know that unless it's God or His truth, it's changing. And so I guess this morning, very shortly, the question is, how do you look at the things of the church? The, the structure we have, the things we have. I, I'm not, I don't have some magical change. There's not a bomb I'm going to drop on you. you know, I, don't, I don't have that. What I want to know is, is when we look at these things in our, in our church, in our life, in our fellowship, in your own life, the things that, that are generally fairly constant-ish, are you trusting in them or are you just enjoying them? Because they could change. They're allowed to change and they have to change. If, if maturing, growing, and spreading are changing ideas, then what is not going to change? So really, I just want you to ask, how do you see these things? I'm not going to say any one of them, because then everybody will get sidetracked. Just how do you see them? Well, that's the first attitude. Here is the second, here's the second way. And by the way, I do want to call your attention to verse 8, just before we leave this point. Peter says this, I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And it says the voice spoke again from heaven. And yes, the voice has to do this three times, which just goes to show you, even when you have good intentions, we can just get stuck. This isn't something that's done out of a negative spirit. Peter says, you know, far be it from me. I've never done this. And the Lord, the Lord, three times has to say, relax. Allow it to happen. It has solved the question I've been asking as to why do I keep preaching about change? I feel like the Lord's going because I have to say it multiple times. Relax. Allow it to happen. So there, that's the, that's the first attitude. Here's the second way I might read this. If it wasn't so negative, this might be the positive side. Would it go like this? Peter. We heard that you went into the house of a Gentile despite our traditions, despite everything we know to be true, despite all the teachings of the prophets. You need to explain to us why you would do this. I would say this this second attitude, if it was read this way, and, and I do think at the end of the day it's a mixture of both. This second attitude... Is, is, is concerned about this idea of biblical compromise or compromising the truth to kind of reach people in whatever way. Sometimes you'll hear churches, when the pendulum swings 
to the far extreme of change, they'll say, we'll do whatever we need to do to reach the lost. I think the Lord says, no. You do whatever I tell you to do to reach the lost. But there's some things you never do. There's things you do not compromise on. And I think on this, uh, uh, this, this crowd, if they're asking it this way, they're, what they're watching is they're watching Peter having set a precedent in the church. He's done something that's never been done before. And they want to know, what is the reason? What's the why? Why are you doing this differently? We deserve to know. There's a story in later in Acts when Paul, the apostle, is traveling through Greece and he ends up in a town called Berea and he preaches in the synagogues in, the Berea, in Berea and the Berean Jews, they're known for this, their notoriety is that they took the scriptures and they searched the scriptures to know if what Paul was saying was accurate. And it's the same attitude. It's an attitude that's not just critical, it's a critical thinking attitude. It listens and is trying to process. And I think, that's, I think that is maybe the second kind of attitude. And it's certainly an attitude our church should have. We should not be one of these, let's just change for change's sake, or we'll do whatever we need to do. It's everything changes, we acknowledge it changes, but every step we make is going to be thoughtful, and it's going to be caring for, for who we are and for what God says we are. But there's this question when something changes in the church. And the question is this. Is it changing because God made a mistake or is something new happening? In other words, when, when, if you're asking why would Peter eat with the Gentiles, certainly a question in their mind is, is he simply saying, ah, the Old Testament isn't, isn't right? That God made a mistake? It's a clerical error? Or did something new happen? And I think there's this verse. The verse 9 to me is, is, um, really solves this. This, this question for those who would be asking it this way. Look at verse 9. The Lord says this, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. You see that? Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God is not saying, Oh, the Gentiles, I was wrong. They're not dirty, they're clean. He's not saying that. He's not saying, oh, the Jewish law about cleanliness, the, the kind of ways that I've been trying to teach you of spirit of invitation and exclusivity, the ways I've tried to teach you that, that to be holy is to really be set apart. I'm, God is not saying that's all wrong. God is saying, I've made something clean that was not clean before. And that is significant. That, that we can hold in both hands this attitude that comes out of this scripture of, of the church is set apart and is clean and is holy, just like Old Testament Scripture testifies. All those Old Testament Scriptures are accurate and true. They point to this image of the way the church ought to be set apart, but, but Christ enters into the story. Right? Christ said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to finish it, fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, the unique thing that's happened is that the power of Jesus Christ takes things that are dirty and makes them clean. He does it. It's not the rituals. It's not the right. It's the power of Christ. And that shows up in the story. And as, as Peter talks, as he explains his story, I feel, like, I feel like he's that lady who pulled the string. You know, these people are like, what do you do? What's going on? Why are we... We're, they were in the dark. Why would this happen? We're, we're, why would Peter eat with Gentiles? And Peter just kind of gives a story. Look, the Lord came to me while I was praying. 
and showed me this vision. And then the Lord came to Cornelius while he was praying. He gave him this vision. Then the Lord met us up. And then the Lord showed up. And the Lord showed up in exactly the same way he showed up with us. In the same validating way, that's why, that's why I ate with them. And when that happens, they say, oh, sounds about right. Praise the Lord. And they start to progress through it. And I think, I just hope that that shapes our attitude. As we're, we're, as we're leaving this, this section of Scripture, I, I, I feel as we say farewell to it, just what is your attitude towards change? That's all I want you to ask. It's just what is your attitude? Not towards the word change, but to, towards allowing the Lord to change. To change us. Okay, well that's the first part. Here's the second part. Let's back all the way out of the story. The whole story. And let's ask some questions at a distance as we look at change in general. Why? What does God intend through change? What is He doing through change in this story and in the life of the church? Because if you look at this, one thing you will see in this account is that there is much, there's a great amount of divine clarity. We see a lot of divine clarity in this whole story. The way God appears to Peter and Cornelius, that's certainly divine. The preparation that's gone behind it is divine. We see it and we go, wow, that's exceptional. We look at, at the ways that the repetition of the story in the book itself shows that, there's, that it's an important event that, that the, the church is, is, is noting the fact that Luke puts it here. This is, by the way, this is the third time, essentially, we've read this story. Because when we read what happens to Cornelius, and we read what happens to Peter, and then they meet, and Cornelius tells Peter what happened to him, and Peter kind of hints what happened to him, and now we're reading about it again. In Acts 15 of the Jerusalem Council, Peter's going to hint at this very same story again. And, by the way, every story, essentially, after the 12th chapter of Acts, is about the Gentiles coming into the church. And so there's, this, there's divine clarity on the Lord's part of making sure the story not only happens, but that it's recognized as significant and it's placed in the text the right way. There's six witnesses that go with Peter to Joppa. We read that today. That he went down, there were six people. The ancient tradition is, if you have seven witnesses, so Peter plus six, if you have seven witnesses to an event, it's, it happened. All of these little things just so a lot of divine orchestration of the Lord to make sure that this change takes place and that it holds. But this is the challenge. This is the challenge, I think, for the church. Is sometimes we look at divine clarity when we read Scripture and we confuse it for something that's taking the place of faith. Like we look back on the story. We look on everything that God's done here. And there's a part of me that goes, well, of course, it would be it's a no-brainer that the Lord would do all that. I mean, you, all you have to do is share what's going to happen. And, and, I, and, and there's a place to kind of that, that, that we can be where we start to doubt whether there's any faith required. And I do, not think, I do not think that we should mistake the divine clarity here for the kind of faith that's being exercised by Peter and by the church. I think it's mounds of faith. I think there's tons of faith that's going on here. I just want to share with you why. First of all, the Jewish community in Jerusalem right now, at this very time in Scripture, is at a breaking point. 
It's about to explode. There's so much zeal and discomfort with Roman law. There's so much hatred of the Gentile world. There's so much um, kind of impatient fury for a Messiah that hasn't shown up yet. In a very few short years, the Jews are going to have an uprising and the Romans are going to be tired of it. They're going to destroy the temple and they're going to scatter the Jews across the, across the world. And they will not return to Jerusalem until the 1940s. That's how significant. I mean, we are on the eve of that happening. A few decades after this. So that's the environment that Peter has to carry this message. I ate in the house with Gentiles and they came to know the Lord. If you are a good Jew, do you, how much do you think that might bother you? I mean, you have fostered hatred for these people. It's not just a Gentile, is it? He's a Roman soldier. In Caesarea, for crying out loud. I mean, it's, there's got to be faith there. Peter has to have been wrestling with the significance of this event. I wonder if the whole way back to Jerusalem, he's thinking, they are not going to be happy when I tell them what I, who I ate dinner with. Guess who I ate dinner with? You add to that other ideas. The ideas of, of, of the Pharisees, the rise of the Pharisees during this time. This issue, even after this chapter, does not stick in the church. Peter himself struggles through this. For the next three or four chapters, Peter's going to be struggling with whether or not what he said is actually accurate. Yeah, I mean, you don't see it, but he's inconsistent when he goes to some places, and they end up having to call a big council to finally put this to rest once and for all. And so, despite all the divine clarity... I do not want us to think that we've exited the realm of faith here, that there's, there's Christians making very difficult decisions. And I think that's important for us as a church and for you as, as an individual in your own lives and, and in our own rather insignificant changes. Because I think sometimes when we pray about change, and when I say change, I mean pray about things happening in our life. That's change, right? When we pray about these, I wonder how often our prayers sound like this to the Lord. Lord, act in such a way that requires that I don't need faith. That's how I think we pray, oftentimes. I think we pray oftentimes, Lord, be so clear that I don't need to be faithful. Be so clear that I don't have to take another step. Do you think that the Lord has a vested interest in reducing the faith of His people? I think there's a lot of good ways to pray. Pray for divine clarity so that we know the will of the Lord. Pray for, pray for, pray for understanding. But when we, when we pray kind of like, Lord, show me the answer, but our spirit means show me the answer so that I don't have to step out on faith, do we expect God to jump up and down to answer that one? I think I have some better prayers. Not I think I have better prayers. I think I've thought up some, but I want to share with you. It sounded wrong. How about this? God, prepare my soul to desire what you want. That's a better prayer. Not, Lord, turn on the light because I don't want to step forward. But how about, Lord, Lord, let me want what you want more than anything else in the world. In fact, Jesus once said, hey, you want to know how to pray? I'll tell you how to pray. Pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is the way to pray. Not, Lord, turn the lights on so I can see what's happening. 
when we, when we get through this, after we inch through this dark cellar, we will one day look back and we'll smile and we'll say, look with all the divine clarity at what happened. You can listen to Dick's story. Now you can look back and see massive divine clarity of God's preparation. He's trained in linguistics. He's given a heart for these people. He goes to the Philippines. He's growing up. About the only real divine action that sticks out is this holy urge he has. But once he crosses, he meets people who 400 years earlier heard from Spanish missionaries about God. That's Peter and Cornelius. He traveled with seven people, counting himself. That's odd. It's odd. We look back and we go, oh, wow, God was all over that. But I bet you it didn't feel that way when you're hiking the mountains. So as we pray, as we pray as a church, this is the prayer. Lord, we're not scared of change. We're not scared of the dark. The thing we're scared of is opposing you. That is the prayer. God forbid that we stand in opposition to the Lord. On March 14th, that's two Sundays from now, we're going to be meeting for church at the Wilmington Christian School that Sunday. Not here, but at Wilmington Christian School. Not at 9 in the morning, but at 6 in the evening. And there's a few reasons for this. The first reason is, is because in September, when Pastor Terry and I started praying for vision and for understanding the direction of the church and where we ought to be going and these sorts of things, it, sure, it shortly came out that whatever ends up happening, because we didn't have the answers at that time, but whatever ends up happening, we ought to have a place and time to communicate it in a responsible way. And so I remember Terry came in the office with a great idea once. He said, let's meet at Wilmington Christian where we can put everybody in the same room and have one big congregational setting where everybody's hearing. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to cram everybody in the same room. We've got our entire paid child care staff coming out to pull as many people out of child care as possible to put as many people in the room as we can so that we can enjoy our being together and so that we can kind of hear... Um, so that we can hear and communicate what I think the Lord's doing in this church and where we're going. And, and, and it, oh, here's the elegant part. It's daylight savings, so you can sleep in. There's just massive elegance to the whole thing there. Right, so it's in the evening. So sleep in, take your time, have brunch with your family, take the day, because we're meeting in the evening. You can come on out, and, you can, and, and we can enjoy it. So on that, on that week... On March 14th, we're going to communicate more succinctly and, and more coherently what we think God's doing in this church, where the direction of the church leadership has been going, the deacons and the church council. If you're at the members meeting this past week, you've already got a taste of it. I'm going to be going to individual life groups to meet and to share at a, at a very personal level so that we can talk about these things. But I would pray. My prayer for us, and I hope my prayer that you have for the Lord is, Dear Lord, whatever we do, help us to be a desire to be obedient to you and not in opposition of you.